From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Donald Trump Jr., Ben Carson, Grover Norquist. Just a few of the conservative luminaries will be in Denver this weekend for the Western Conservative Summit. A central theme this year, that religious freedom is under attack. We'll explore the thinking. Then, most immigrants detained by ICE are held in private facilities. That's raising concerns about proper oversight. Later, we're pretty sure he's the longest-serving professor in Colorado. 81-year-old Dwayne Vandenbush teaches history. He used to coach track, still runs half-marathons, and adores polka. Plus, tensions reignite between Colorado and New Mexico over Chile. And reinventing a classic musical so it more accurately depicts the heroine. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It appears the immigration roundup outlined by President Trump will begin Sunday. The New York Times reports the enforcement will target at least 2,000 people in the country illegally in major cities. When undocumented people are arrested, they enter a web of public and private facilities, a world of contractors and subcontractors. There are concerns specifically about conditions at the private detention center in Aurora. Congressman Jason Crow now plans weekly visits to the facility run by GEO Group. He believes ICE and Homeland Security aren't providing proper oversight to ensure health and safety. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has been reporting on this nationally and speaks with my colleague Avery Lill. Hi, Yuki. Hi. Why is there so much concern that ICE contracting with private prison companies reduces oversight at these immigration facilities? Well, there are multiple ways in which it reduces oversight. I mean, at the most basic level, we're talking about information, about visibility. And this is where public and private sectors differ, right? So the federal government, because it's funded by tax dollars, has to disclose some to some extent how it spends its, its money. So an agency like ICE, you know, discloses who it contracts with to do to carry out some of the work, like the GeoGroup contract. Um, but those same rules don't apply to business. So, you know, a business isn't required to disclose who it subcontracts with, for example, to carry out that work. So GeoGroup does not uh, disclose, you know, its subcontractors, for example. And, you know, on a basic level, what that means is while you can file a Freedom of Information Act request to an agency like ICE to find out more information, you know, you can't do so with business. And the concern, so, is there therefore that you when you have so much private industry involvement in government it creates a sort of shadowy world where a lot of government functions are carried out but in this sort of secret or hidden you know in a secret or hidden way from public view because so much of the work is carried out by private industry and what do we know about which companies are contracting with public agencies like ice well, uh, there are two major ones in particular that you mentioned, GeoGroup and CoreCivic, uh, that um, that operate about 70% of ICE's detention facilities. Uh, you know, in general, government and agencies like ICE uh, rely a lot on contractors to carry out its work. Um, and, you know, ICE also contracts with uh, sometimes with city and county jails, which in turn then also often have, uh, uh, you know, 
contractors of their own that often turn out to be private prison companies uh, like a like a geo group or a core civic um, but companies like geo and core civic also subcontract for a lot of the goods and services that come into those detention facilities and not a lot is known about who those are about or how what they do and about how many migrants in ice custody are being held in facilities that are operated by private prison companies so that number fluctuates a lot uh, right now the total population of people, undocumented um, immigrants that ICE, uh, that are being held at ICE facilities is 54,000. That's the highest it's ever been. And of those, 70% are in private facilities. So that comes to about 38,000. Uh, the number of detainees has been on an upward tra- trajectory. And um, part of how prison companies actually market themselves is by offering this kind of flexibility to sort of grow and shrink. And how does ICE oversee companies like GeoGroup, which again runs a detention facility in Aurora? Well, it does so in a number of ways, um, some of which is sort of internal, their own internal reviews, and uh, and but they also rely on a contractor. So you have a situation where a contractor is actually overseeing ICE's other contractors. Um, in ICE's case, that contractor is called Nakamoto Group, um, and this is the contractor that has um, the contract to review all of ICE's detention facilities every year. Uh, But there are concerns that, you know, that has become sort of a rubber stamping exercise. And I can get into that a little bit later. But, um, you know, in terms of the other forms of oversight outside of the third party contractor, uh, ICE also has some internal monitoring of these private private facilities and whether they're up to standard. So it conducts its own reviews, but less frequently than Nakamoto Group, so once every three years or so. And it also has uh, people stationed at the facilities themselves who could report problems as they come up. I think it's interesting to note, though, that none of the mechanisms that I mentioned are independent of ICE. So all, you know, ICE gets to review all of its own reviews of its facilities, if that makes sense. It all goes through ICE. And you said that there are rubber stamping concerns about outside contractors that review the detention facilities. Can you describe what those are? Well, you know, the concern stems from what critics say is a fundamental lack of independence. Nakamoto Group, the third-party contractor that I said, you know, reviews the work of the other contractors, is paid millions of year, a year to buy ICE to review its facilities, and ICE gets to edit their reports. Um, Nakamoto has little incentive, uh, you know, its critics say, to point out the problems that others have found. So um, the, ICE inset- the ICE Center in Aurora that you mentioned is kind of an interesting example. Over the last three years, Nakamoto has passed that facility, has given it a passing grade. Uh, no problems are documented. But in 2016, this uh, uh, the same year that Aurora passed Nakamoto's inspection, ICE did its own inspection and found two dozen deficiencies, eight of which had to do with medical care, which is you know a, a concern that's been brought up sort of nationally about negligent medical care in these facilities. And the Department of Homeland Security, which is the big agency that ICE is a part of, um, has an inspector general, a government watchdog group that um, has looked at the way ICE polices all of its contractors, including Nakamoto, and has found you know sort of deficiencies in that oversight. Um, and, you know, specifically, the inspector general found that, you know, Nakamoto misreported or overlooked problems in its reports and, um, you know, basically says, as a result, ICE doesn't really have meaningful oversight of its detention system or the contractors that run them or the contractor that is overseeing them. Um, 
and that those contractors face little to no consequence when violations are found. And when violations are found, how have you found that ICE responds? Well, you know, when violations are found is sort of a key phrase that you use just there, because as I said earlier, its own outside contractor rarely actually documents or finds, you know, problems at these facilities. And even when ICE's own internal investigators or outside investigators, um, you know, find problems, um, you know, they they can get waivers. Um, the companies that like a Geo Group or CoreCivic can can apply for waivers. So so they can sort of be legitimately in noncompliance for whatever the the, the violation was. Uh, and that's important because, um, you know, it's only after a facility has failed to meet adequate standards twice that there are payments, you know, the financial penalties can be levied. Like, the, you know, the government can say, we're not going to pay you because you're not up to standard. Um, so, you know, ICE is trying to respond to this and is say says it's getting better. Uh, in a four-month period starting in December of last year, it says it has levied fines of a half a million dollars on its contractors. But I wasn't able to get any more information about what those fines were for or who paid them. And those waivers that they're applying for, those waivers are from ICE itself. Yes, exactly. And what about businesses that supply goods and services to public and privately run detention facilities? I'm thinking about Wayfair. Employees walked out a couple of weeks ago when a worker discovered that the company supplied bedroom furniture to a facility that houses migrant children seeking asylum. How available is information about which companies do business with detention facilities? Well, this gets back to the issue I was talking to you about earlier, how contractors like GEO and CoreCivic have to report their contracts with the government, but they don't have to report their subcontractor arrangements. So, I mean, to be clear, to supply things like toothbrushes, soap, food, or in the case of Wayfair, bedroom furniture, companies running the detention centers buy those goods and services from other companies, their subcontractors. But GEO and CoreCivic told me um, they would not share that information, and it's not information that's public. So the way we found out about some companies subcontracting with the detention centers is often through their own employees who are looking at invoices and, you know, kind of put two and two together that their company is working with, you know, the detention facility. Yuki, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has covered the business of immigrant detention, speaking there with my colleague Avery Lill. This weekend, there's a huge gathering of conservatives in Denver. This year's Western Conservative Summit is organized partly around the idea that religious freedom is under attack in America. Jeff Hunt puts the conference together. He directs the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. And welcome back to the program, Jeff. Hi, Ryan. Great to be with you. We'll get to religious freedom in a moment. Uh, But given the results of the last election in Colorado, uh, does this summit now take place in enemy territory? (laughs) I say that partly in jest. (laughs) Well, conservatives are definitely fired up. So after what we perceived as threats to religious freedom, parental rights, the sanctity of life, traditional family values, um, the original intent of the Constitution, free markets, all those issues um, that we dealt with at this last legislative session, conservatives are very fired up. And we're seeing it in our ticket sales. We're seeing it in the response of our speakers. Uh, People are 
concerned about the direction of the state and they're fighting back in the Western conservative summit is going to be kind of that rallying place for many grassroots conservatives. So it sounds like the summit will be something of a response to the legislative session in this state. Absolutely. And in fact, we have three issues that are still very outstanding, very pending issues. So when you look at the Tabor, uh, the referendum CC, the threat to Tabor that will likely be on the ballot this year, um, the national popular vote issue, which will be on the ballot next year. And now there's an effort to bring about a ban on abortion after 21 weeks in the state of Colorado. And so not only is there a response to the legislative overreach that took place during this last legislative session, there's a lot of upcoming issues that uh, conservatives are deeply concerned about and want to fight on. What makes you say overreach? In well, words, Democrats have the, the troika at the legislature. Didn't they just follow with their mandate? In some ways, yes. So when you look at how the ballot initiatives did during the 2018 election, it was very clear that uh, Coloradans support the energy industry. And yet we ended up with Senate Bill 181, which was very restrictive of the energy industry. Um, And on other issues, I mean, when you look at the kind of overreach on parental rights, um, that's something that really fired up the grassroots base that I don't think was necessarily discussed during the election. So um, if if the Democrats had gone out there and said, we're going to uh, mandate a comprehensive sex education without opt-outs, which is what the original bill was, without clear opt-outs, um, I'm not sure they would have been as successful. And when they ran that through the legislative session this year, um, you saw hundreds of parents down at the legislative session deeply concerned about what they thought was a threat to parental rights. It's interesting you mentioned the national popular vote measure. In the past, Republicans have supported that. Oh, I, and there are some that well, do today. Um, we had a, we hosted a debate at Colorado Christian University where one of the founders of the national popular vote movement was a Republican that came out of California. Um, but uh, that's that's a an abandonment of state sovereignty, and it's going to be fascinating to see if at some point, I mean, you can just imagine what could happen in the state of Colorado, right? We vote for Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump wins the national popular vote, and we hand our electoral votes over to Donald Trump. Um, I'm not sure the people of Colorado would like to lose their state sovereignty. And this is an issue that, uh, judging by how the Democrats aren't fighting for it as much as, as you would think they are, I think it's going to be a losing issue for them. So if this ends up on the ballot, so we ended up doing what's called a a citizen's veto. So it was passed in the legislature, signed by the governor. But um, because we implemented a citizen's veto, which we haven't done much in this state, we're forcing it to a ballot initiative, which is a little bit ironic because um, the the liberals in the state uh, don't necessarily want it to be on the ballot. So they don't necessarily trust the popular vote of the people of the state of Colorado, yet they want to hand the popular vote to uh, or elect our elector uh, electors to the national popular vote. So there's a bit of an irony there in how this thing is playing out. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about the Western Conservative Summit, which comes up this weekend in Denver. And uh, Jeff Hunt joins me. He's talking a little bit about the political backdrop that uh, Denver and Colorado play for the big event. I do want to ask you about uh, something in the news. Comprehensive immigration reform has so far eluded Congress and the White House. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeff, the administration is threatening widespread deportations. Uh, There are reports now that these will begin Sunday, as we've said. Many faith leaders decried President Trump's family separation policy, which he changed course on. 
You're based at a Christian university. How do you see the president's handling of this issue? Yeah, this is a this is a tough issue. I wrote about this in the Denver Post a few months ago because um, as Christians, you believe that everybody has inherent dignity and worth um, and that we are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. Um, and I've done uh, ministry work in Juarez, Mexico and built houses down there for our neighbors to the south and sought to serve them. Um, and so at one level, you want to respect their dignity and in respecting the dignity of illegal immigrants, you want to also recognize that they need to come to this country in a way that abides by our laws and our rules. And so when there's a breakdown of, of that aspect of what I would call the, the negotiation that happens between our, um, between illegal immigrants in our country, um, that that's a problem. But at the same time, um, we're facing a, a serious crisis that, you know, just a few months ago, uh, Democrats were saying there was a crisis at the border. And so um, we've we've got to figure out this this problem. And there's multiple aspects of it. There's there's the aspect that um, people need to come here legally. They need to follow the rules. They need to come here to be Americans. You can't just come to America to want to take money and send it back. Um, our, our kind of history of immigration is the notion that when you come here, you assimilate, that you abide by what America is all about, that you're going to follow the rules. And that's very important. Um, but at the same time- Do you think this is an administration that treats immigrants with dignity? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, they're overwhelmed. I think they're absolutely overwhelmed. Um, and uh, they're trying to do their very best in the midst of being completely overwhelmed. But I, I, I do. I think that we've got we've to figure out a better way to deal with the asylum cases. So I think there's been kind of an abuse of that system. We have nearly a, a million people that are disobeying final orders to leave this state or to leave this country. They've gone through the system. They've gone through the courts and the courts have said no. And yet they're still staying here. So I think there's an abuse on that side that, that isn't fairly covered often. I want to talk about religious freedom, which mm-hmm. is a central tenant of this year's Western Conservative Summit. Uh, I believe Jack Phillips uh, is on the speaker's list, or at least the guest list, the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood. His refusal to bake a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple resulted in a lawsuit that eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which narrowed, narrowly ruled in Philip's favor in 2018. Uh, here's Phillips shortly after his victory. They compared my faith to uh, slave owners, Holocaust. In this case, they call me a hater. Every American should be free to live and work according to their conscience without fear of punishment from the government. Court watchers say the narrow ruling wasn't a clear-cut victory for religious freedom, that it didn't really resolve the larger issue of whether business owners are allowed to refuse customers on a religious, uh, faith-based reason. At what point, just to step back, at what point is a refusal of service no longer an act of faith, but plain old discrimination? Yeah, and this is, uh, you're exactly right that the courts did not settle this. So the issue at stake is Colorado's public accommodation law, um, which uh, creates a protected class with the LGBT community um, that refusal of service is a violation of the law in the same capacity as kind of a violation of uh, refusal of service on race issues or um, uh, uh, sex issues or uh, those types of things. Yeah, and help me understand. I want to know where you draw the line between following faith and discrimination. Right. So I think 
the original intent of the public accommodation laws was to create a shield to protect people from legitimate discrimination. Um, what has happened with Jack Phillips and with others, and we're going to have other cases coming up through the Colorado Civil Rights Commission right now, is it's been used as a sword to go after people of faith, right? So we've lost this notion of civic friendship in our state um, where we uh, get offended by people um, and we therefore drive them towards a government entity to punish them. Um, Jack Phillips. And I, Jack I, that, Phillips's that term case, is fascinating. Civic yeah. friendship. Right. You've, you say we've lost it. We've lost that. Help us understand what it is you think we had that we have lost. Right. Well, I'll give you a great example. So uh, I tweeted about this yesterday. I went and got my hair cut yesterday and there were pride flags in the barber shop. And uh, the, the barber was railing against the religious right. How terrible. That is. I don't think she had any idea who I was or what I stood for. And um, I listened to her. And, I, and she did a great job cutting my hair, and I tipped her, and I left. And I, I, we just had that moment of kind of listening and understanding. Um, with Jack Phillips's cake, Jack, or Jack Phillips's case, what he said was he's happy, to, he's happy to sell them anything that he makes. He just doesn't want to participate in something that violates his conscience. And rather than having an understanding kind of component to that and going, okay, well, well I'm sorry you, you feel that way. I'm going to go to a different baker. Um, we, the, the plaintiffs in that case felt like it was necessary to drag Jack before a government entity in order to punish him. And this kind of notion of, I want to punish people because they do something that either offends me or, um, I disagree with. And I don't think Jack, in Jack's case, that was, uh, discrimination. Um, is he was refusal? happy to be a part of anything that they wanted to buy in their, in their, he was happy to serve them. He just didn't want to be a part of that particular activity. Let's substitute another group. Let, let's say it was an African-American who right. had come in and he said, I'm happy to sell you a cake, but I won't make you one. Is it different if you say that to a gay person than it is if you say that to a black person? Yeah. And that's a good question. So uh, in the case, and this is often, the LGBT issues are often compared to the racial issues. And I think there needs to be an important difference and distinction that's understood there. One, um, race is immutable. Um, you can't change your race. Um, we have many would argue that's true as well of sexuality. And, and some would argue that, but I've had friends who were straight and then became gay and friends who were gay and now are straight. Um, are and, they the majority? And uh, uh, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily an immutable quality. And so what it actually should be more treated like and legal scholars have looked at this is similar to religion. So religion, you can change your religion if you want, but it's something that's deeply held and close to you. And I think that's um, and that's a protected. Um, and so the question is, how do you protect it and why do we protect it? Uh, we protect it because there shouldn't be um because we as a society look at these cases and go, are there legitimate forms of discrimination or are there illegitimate forms of discrimination? So a legitimate form of discrimination in the religious case, for instance, might be that uh, uh, a religious person, does, uh, evangelical, doesn't need to work at a, a Jewish place or something like that. We don't force a Jewish person uh, or Jewish company to hire an evangelical, that type of thing. Jeff, thanks very much. Lots of issues to get to. We appreciate it. Jeff Hunt of Colorado Christian University organized this weekend's Western Conservative Summit. Since our conversation first aired, it's been announced that Colorado Governor Jared Polis will speak, the first Democratic official to address the summit. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News.
Life can be pretty complicated for people who have marijuana-related offenses on their criminal record from before legalization. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize. On the latest episode of On Something, what happens to the people who may be wondering why they're still on the wrong side of the law, even though the law has changed? Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The longest-serving professor in Colorado history is 81-year-old Dwayne Vandenbush, a historian at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. They've done a bunch of digging and can't find anyone who has taught college in this state for longer. This fall will mark Vandenbush's 58th year of classes, and he has a few tips for educators show up talk loud, and be very prepared. And Professor, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Talk loud? Is that is that to keep students awake? What's behind that advice? Well, you know, when I, I grew up on a farm in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a little Belgian farming community called St. Nicholas, and everything was loud on the farm, including tractors and grain mills and threshing machines. So you pretty much had to talk loud to be heard. And that just carried through to the classroom for you. Yeah, it did. Uh, and obviously, show up and be very prepared, you say. Uh, I, I don't normally ask people about their wardrobe, but uh, in this case, I think it's revealing about you. Uh, I understand that your teaching wardrobe hasn't changed in 57 years. With a clip-on tie, what would happen if you showed up in the classroom, say, in a flannel shirt or a sports jersey? <laughs> I think my class would faint. <laughs> what 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 does your attire say about how you view the classroom and the role of being a professor? Well, you know, when I started at Western State in 1962, uh, everybody wore slacks, uh, a, you know, a shirt and a tie, and uh, usually a sports coat. So that's the way I grew up. But the sports coat was a little warm, so I still have a short sleeve shirt, a clip on tie, and uh, good slacks and. That's just the way I started off, and that's probably just the way I'm going to finish. You teach U.S. and world history, Colorado history, and history of the American West. Yes, correct. Those are the major classes I teach. What's an example of how you've changed your material, your syllabus, to reflect new insights? You know, we're always learning something new about a dimension of history. Well, you know, you're always you're always doing research and trying to keep up to date. And you know, things in 1962 and then things in 2019 have changed changed a lot. And uh, there's a lot of uh, revisionistic history that has gone on during that time, which I'm not a big fan of. I I think it's really tough to judge people 50, 60, 100 years ago based on our standards today when they had different standards then. But I do a lot of reading and uh, a lot of the early newspapers. Uh, I try to keep up to date on all the new stuff that's coming on in history. So it's just a day-to-day thing to be prepared. What's an example of how you've adjusted uh, a syllabus? Well, in the, in the early days, of course, we had uh, nothing but fax machines and mimeograph machines and uh uh, you know, things were a lot different in the way you taught. Uh, pr- primarily, at that time, it was a lecture type of thing. I still do a lot of lecturing today, but there's a lot of question and answer 
and I try to use the Socratic method where you, uh, you know, you'll ask a question, get an answer, and then say yes, but, and have you thought about it in this way? So there are a lot of controversial issues that are uh, in the United States and the world today, and we try to touch on all sides of them. Can you give me an example of one? Well, you know, one of them is, uh, you know, let's say talking about a controversial issue of abortion, pro-choice versus pro-life. And, uh, you know, I'll say to a conservative or a liberal, we'll use both, but uh, with regard to a conservative, we'll say something like the uh, conservatives believe that the government should stay out of the affairs of the people. And then how can you justify that by having a, let's say, a conservative or a pro-life person tell a woman and her doctor what to do with her body, and then we go on from there, and it's yes, but. And I would do the same thing with a liberal, you know, which says that the government ought to be involved, and we'll go yes, but on that. So we're trying to cover all facets of, of life. You know, all views are covered. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, you're hearing the, so far as we know, this has been checked by all sorts of people, the governor's office, uh, the university itself, uh, the longest serving professor in Colorado history. That's Dwayne Vandenbush, a historian at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. Uh, you've taught nearly 10,000 students in your time at Western. Do you know how many have gone on to become historians or history professors? You know, a good number of them have uh, gone on to teach history. And, you know, just to point out a few, Mark Youngie went on to become the state historian of Wyoming. Walt Borneman was a state historian in Colorado for a year when the state historian resigned, went on to become a great historian. Uh, So a lot of them have gone on into teaching. A lot of them have gone into museums. A lot of them have gone on to write books like Walt Borneman, one of the top historians in the U.S. today. Uh, For 37 years of your tenure at Western, you were a winning coach of track and field and cross country. How did you fall into that role? Uh, By accident. (laughs) I didn't know very much about that, but uh, one day a bunch of the guys on the team, which I knew from classes, said, uh, you know, the coach would post the workouts and then never be there. So they wanted somebody on the track to hold the watch to record their intervals. So they liked somebody being out there, and that led to them asking me to come to meet so I could take times for them. And eventually I began uh, going out on the track every day. And one day our athletic director, Tracy Bohr, called me in and he said, you know, Vanden Bush, uh, you've been doing all the work from now on. You're the coach. (laughs) Could Could never happen today, but it did then. You were instrumental in implementing Title IX at Western before many larger universities did. Uh, what caused you to recognize the importance of giving uh, equal importance to women's sports back in, I think, 1972? Right, exactly. Well, you know, I, I grew up with, in a household with five sisters, and it always annoyed me that they never got opportunities to do the same thing that the guys did. And I knew that we could either, I told our president, we can uh, get into this and look real good getting into it early, or we could be dragged into it, kicking and screaming into the 20th century. And he agreed. 
And he said, we're going to start track and cross country, but by the same token, you're also going to start a women's ski team and you're going to be the chief recruiter. So we kind of got three women's sports in one. We'd had a women's ski team, but a very unofficial one, a kind of a club team before that time. Oh. And I imagine that when you look back on that, it's something uh, you feel particularly good about. Yeah, I, I do feel real good about it. And, uh, you know, I treated the women just like the men, with some differences, obviously. But when I started, uh, you know, women would get less meal money. Women would have to, uh, in the club sports, uh, not get as many people in the room as the men. So it was a different situation. But when I took over, the men and women, everything was equal. They got equal meal money. They had four to a room just like anybody else. They traveled the same way. And I didn't see any difference in between the men and the women in terms of athletics. Well, you are well-known around Colorado as a professor and a historian. Last year, the lieutenant governor declared a Duane Vandenbush Day. You're also renowned in Gunnison and Crested Butte for your stamina. You'll be 82 next month and still run half marathons, uh, most recently, I think, on the 4th of July. Uh, but, Duane, you're a polka aficionado as well, and uh, we asked you to choose your favorite polka tune to wrap up with. So shall we hear the beer barrel polka? Yes, and before we do that, I want to put a plug in for our great uh, polka band that we have in the Gunnison country, led by Pete Dunda, who I've danced many polkas to his music. There you go. History professor Dwayne Vandenbush is the longest-serving full-time professor at any public college in Colorado. He is preparing to teach his 58th year. It turns out y'all are very funny. I've been laughing out loud in the newsroom, reading your tweets about the oldest known photograph of Denver. We did a story about the picture from about 1859, which depicts the area that's now Larimer Square. I tweeted the image and got responses like this from at Tristan Shouts. I think this is actually the last photo of the area from a time that it was affordable to live there. And a humorously skeptical comment from David Franco I don't know, Ryan. I don't see any Subarus or breweries. Jared Yui saw the covered wagons and Old West storefronts and noticed that even then there was freaking traffic and construction. And Peter Noir comments that the reclaimed wood look has clearly always been fashionable in Lodo. Colorado's governor has challenged the governor of New Mexico to a taste-off. Who has better chilies? On social media, Polis called green chilies from New Mexico, quote, inferior. Truly, the debate may never be settled. A while back, we got a Colorado Wonders question about why Pueblo is so passionate about its green chilies. So I asked food journalist Gustavo Arellano which one he thinks tastes better. 
I say this as someone who just literally tasted Pueblo chilies for the first time this year. The Mirasol chili, which is the original Colvitar of what we now know as Pueblo chilies, it's a better chili than the hatch. And I love hatch. They're fleshy. They have a good flavor. The Mirasol has that times two. It's more pungent. It has almost a citrusy flavor. I just think it's a better chili. And I'm sure all of New Mexico hates me now. And it's on Twitter, they absolutely do, but I stand by my words. Hey, I'm the guy who wrote the book about Mexican food in the United States. And for the people who are now originally from the Southwest, a quick uh, a primer, if you will. When we talk about chili, we're not talking about chili in a can. We're talking about, you know, chiles, in other words, chili peppers. Yeah. But not bell peppers, not, um, you know, not small sp- spicier peppers, but long green peppers that are fleshy that people roast and then turn into all sorts of numbers of things. So historically, the, the, the you know, the main producer has been New Mexico, and specifically the Mesilla Valley of southern New Mexico. The town that calls itself the chili capital of the world is Hatch. So they have, they have about, uh, you know, they, they have a far, they have more decades promoting their specific chili than Colorado does. Help us understand, when you go down to Pueblo, for instance, this is sort of the the pumpkin spice of life down there. In other words, it's in everything. Pueblo chili is ubiquitous down there. Is that right? It's insulting to compare Pueblo chili. I know. To, uh, I knew. I knew you were going to say that. A lot of ang- <laughs> expect a lot of angry responses from Pueblo. Yeah. But yes, no, it is a way of life. I mean, across the American Southwest, again, I can't overemphasize how important the chili is, especially in the fall. When you have the fall, I mean, when, when I was back, when I was in Denver back in August, you already had. I can't remember the name of the spot. Morales Chili Stand, I think, off of Federal or somewhere around there. You just start smelling that roasted green chili as it smokes from August all the way until October. It's a way of life. But in Pueblo especially, since Pueblo has been so isolated from the rest, you know, from Denver or the rest of Colorado, it's really a piece of religion. And so if you insult it, people are going to have a problem with it. Okay, you've said that the Pueblo chili is better. What's your favorite way to eat it or one of your favorites? I love the slopper. The slopper is a regional specialty from Pueblo. So you just get your regular cheeseburger, hamburger, whatever, and then you smother it in green chili. So think of a Mexican hamburger, except an actual hamburger instead of a you know burrito with a hamburger patty inside of it. That, that's a traditional way. But I also, honestly, when you have a roasted chili pepper like that, just get a good flour tortilla, good thick flour tortilla from Pueblo or even Denver, and just roll it up, maybe sprinkle a little bit of salt on it. That's all you need. It's perfect. You get the fleshiness. You get the heat. And, and the great thing about the, the Pueblo chili, a Pueblo mild is as hot as a hatch. <gasps> as a hot hatch. It's hot. It okay. is a very hot chili. Thanks for being with us. Will you ever come back on the show after I made that pumpkin spice comparison? <laughs> no. I, all right. I will always be on the show for you guys. Okay. Reporter Gustavo Ariano on the rivalry between Pueblo and Hatch Chilies. We spoke in October. Margaret Brown, better known today as Molly Brown, is one of Colorado's great success stories. After striking it rich with her husband in Leadville, Leadville, that is, the philanthropist and Titanic survivor fought for causes like juvenile justice and women's suffrage. She ran for U.S. Senate, and her Denver home, of course, is a museum. Yet many of those details are lost in depictions of Brown's life, 
like the 1960 musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which became a film starring Debbie Reynolds. It's a fairly inaccurate portrayal of Brown, who went by Maggie, not Molly. Beautiful people of Denver, beautiful people of Denver, whipperty gentlemen, flipperty talk, look at them scissor tail coats. No one laughs, everyone smiles instead. Don't say back house, say the shed. No one speaks, lest they is spoken to. Oh, hell, I ain't proud. How do you do? Well, a revision of the musical, which debuted in Denver, works to correct the mistakes with new dialogue, lyrics, and music. We're going to listen to an example of the reboot shortly with my guest, Castle Rock native Beth Malone. She originated the revamped role and will take it to New York next year. Beth, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. I wonder what bugs you, irks you, about how Brown is depicted in the original version, now that you're so familiar with her life. Well, I mean, you can't even listen to that little snippet of Tammy Grimes singing Beautiful People of Denver just now without just getting a big, I have a big old grin on my face because it's delectable. It's it's like irresistible. So... It's hard to be really truly bugged by anything about that because it's just so delightful. But, um, you know, in these times, these political times, when you're, when you're thinking about putting a, a strong female character down center, um, someone who was really a progressive way ahead of her time, you know, it's, it, it's like tone deaf to ignore the fact that the actual Margaret Tobin Brown was really a, a political visionary and, and just like a, a, a hero for, for all times. And, and just like, um, you know, a woman of the West whose story was really watered down to make it more palatable for, you know, a broad audience when you really have the facts of her life. She's, she's so much more than that. What's an example of her biography that most surprised you? Well, I mean, she ran for Senate and uh, she ran for the House of Representatives. Like, she ran for office, which um, is amazing. You know, she was a suffragette. She was one of the original people. One of the reasons that Colorado got the vote first was because of uh, mining rights. They wanted they wanted the, the vote to go their way to keep the... the um, the silver crash from happening so that so they let a bunch of women uh, vote. And so, you know, Margaret Tobin Brown and in, in it, you know, what you had said about her name being Maggie, you know, she was more often referred to as Maggie also. But in those times, a Victorian woman was Mrs. John Joseph, you know, J.J. Brown. She was Mrs. J.J. Brown more often than she was ever addressed with her first name because this is the times when, in which she was living. Like, a woman was only as powerful as the man that she was attached to. Um, but Margaret Brown was a perfect example of the phrase, well-behaved women rarely make history ah. <laughs> uh, because she was just... Um, she was referred to in Denver newspaper as having, um, like, an unfortunate personality or something like that because she, she you know, just like that 
beautiful people of Denver lyric that just went by as she would say, oh, whatever, how do you do? You know, you're not supposed to say hi to people as you go down the street. It's just not done hmm. um, in this uh, sacred 36 society, which were, you know, this original um, group of well-heeled Denver socialites uh, who she was desperately trying to become uh, part of, and they continuously snubbed her. So that is really based on on fact and things like that. But you, you mentioned, what by the she way, did. Yeah, you mentioned Colorado giving women the vote, uh, which was done by referendum in 1893. Uh, uh, and um, the Wyoming legislature granted women the right to vote in, in 69. Uh, but Wyoming, I think, was So we were we were later than than them, right? I think so, yeah. Just to, but, but, you know, early in, in um, you know, in the larger Indeed. scheme of things. Uh, so here's our guest, Tony and Grammy nominee Beth Malone, singing a new addition to the unsinkable Molly Brown. This is a tune called Wait For Me. to get an early rendition of that tune. Tell me just a little bit about Wait For Me. Wait For Me is probably the most interesting new addition to our Molly Brown because it was initially written by Meredith Wilson, who wrote the score for The Unsinkable Molly Brown and for The Music Man. So he's very well known for those two scores, which are brilliant. But this particular tune was not in either of those shows. This was a trunk song because sometimes Meredith Wilson was commissioned to write commercial sheet music for um, for uh, any number of reasons. But this particular one was written for a commercial, uh, for chemical warfare. And it was, it was initially a march, an anthemic march um, that was about, it was like... Um, so if the tune goes, uh, let me see, so you can hear how that can be an anthem march or a ballad. But I couldn't hear that until Michael Rafter <laughs> pretty much dug it out of the trunk and said, listen to this song, listen to this song. And he played it for Dick Scanlon as a ballad. And... Let me Dick just say that like, Dick, well, that's beautiful. Dick Scanlon did this revised version of the unsinkable Molly Brown. Dick Scanlon rewrote. Yeah, he he's the one who kind of spearheaded the project um, at, and and the revised the re, revision that we're doing. So Dick Scanlon and Michael Rafter is doing all the compositions um, and re. Uh, arranging the existing compositions and also adding new uh, Meredith Wilson tunes in in different ways. And that is what Wait For Me is. Wait For Me is um, a march that Michael Rafter turned into an 11 o'clock ballad. And and, uh, it's just sort of unrecognizable. The sheet music for... um, uh, Fire Up is what the song was usually, was originally called Fire Up. 
a commercial for chemical warfare. And on the front of the (laughs) sheet music was this guy in a hazmat suit holding a big, um, like, flamethrower. And so that's that's our that's our eleven o'clock ballot (laughs) and and the unsinkable Molly Brown. I understand that Israel has been quite physically demanding. Tell us, tell us how. Well, Kathleen Marshall is our director, and she's an amazing uh, choreographer also. So she choreographs as well as directs. And um, I knew that she was very dancey. And I'm not really um, super dancey, but I am very – because I'm from Colorado, so we are um, very athletic people. I think we're one of the (laughs) fittest – States in the Union Indeed. because we uh, we have ups and we have downs. And so we ride up mountains and ski down them and we're very fearless and um, bendy. So I was very fearless and bendy. And I said to Kathleen, let's try to make like ain't, uh, ain't down yet as as like physical as possible. Why don't we have like well, there's a trampoline and a zip line and a, a tele like a fireman's pole. Um, and so it's become increasingly Cirque du Soleil-like. Huh. Um, and then after you do all of that, because there's this chase where the guys try to get her to leave the mine and she runs around and they chase her and it becomes this big fiasco. But then after that, you have to sing. And in Denver, because it was at 5280, I would start ain't down yet and then the world would sort of like close in into like this tiny pinhole of light and then and then it would come back like a like um like an MGM at the end of the movie where it just kind of closes in and then opens back up the aperture opens back up and I was like I have to just get comfortable with almost fainting on stage every night wow. because I just <laughs> and I was pretty fit I was pretty pretty fit but um uh, since then I I've uh, upped my fitness and my cardio for this role because I don't want to be battling the the role is a monster in yeah. and of itself. And I so just I don't want to say, be battling that. We have Ain't Down Yet. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Let's wrap up with yeah. it. That's Beth Malone. <laughs> she plays the title role in the forthcoming off-Broadway production of a revamped unsinkable Molly Brown. It opens in New York City's Abrams Arts Center in February. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.